The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The Coast is Calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California Coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Pace Line is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. The Pace Line finds new roads in far off places. Itty bitty little roads. It was in some ways the craziest riding circumstance I've ever been in in my life. These were ultra narrow roads. Uh, some of the roads weren't even on the maps. It, it was it was crazy. And we hear from a bike maker trying to make a name for himself with three models and one material. I had always loved titanium uh, bikes back in the 90s and metal, jet steel bikes and, and titanium in general and always was a fan of them. Just the ride is just is supple. It's, you know, it's great. And it's classic. It's vintage. I think of Le Monde. I think of Fignon. I think of Eddie Merckx. <laughs> Line, the podcast on two wheels. Welcome to show number 65. With you for this next little while, probably what, 45 minutes or so, is Hottie, me, Fatty, and he's back, Patty. Yes, I'm going to call you Patty because. Can't because wait you can't for stop this. Me. <laughs> Which means with Pat, Padraig or Patrick or Patty back, the show will be about three times as long. Oh. We missed you, man. How are you doing, dude? <laughs> It's good to be back. Uh, I was really bummed to miss last week, uh, but uh, I was out on a bike ride uh, for a new bike that we'll be talking about shortly. But yeah, it was. It's really nice to be back in this time zone and over the jet lag. So I, I was uh, in Japan, as you, I think, told uh, listeners, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, we understand that you were turning Japanese. <laughs> Um, Sorry, I'm going to bring up all the 80s Japan referencing songs I can. Uh, well, uh, I'm sure we'll find a few other entertaining ones. Yeah. So I was on assignment for Bicycling Magazine. It's a travel feature. And we were on the island of Shikoku, which of the four major islands uh, in the Japanese archipelago, Shikoku is the smallest. It's just south of Kyushu and just west of Honshu, the big island. And we were doing a clockwise loop around the island. We were attempting to uh, rendezvous with as many of the 88 Buddhist uh, Buddhist temples that are on the island that are part of this historic pilgrimage that goes back more than 1,000 years, about 1,200 years. And Hmm. I thought it'd be pretty interesting to, you know, go gallivanting around this island and uh, check out a bunch of those. And so that's more or less what we did. We spent a bunch of time up in the mountains on itty bitty little roads. It was in some ways the craziest riding circumstance I've ever been in in my life. These were ultra narrow roads. Uh, Some of the roads weren't even on the maps. It, It was it was crazy. I really shouldn't reveal too much uh, because people need to go out 
and by the issue of bicycling when that hits sometime this fall or winter. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So were these mostly paved or dirt, a mix of both? Um, can you tell us what kind of bike you were on? So I was on my seven cycles, uh, uh, Earhart, which is my travel mm-hmm. bike. So it's a titanium road bike with S&S couplers. It's got uh, cable actuated hydraulic discs and a subcompact crank with a low gear of 3028 on those wheels. So pretty straight up road bike, 28 millimeter tires. The roads were all paved, but, Mm -hmm. you know, there were times where the fact that they were paved was more or less irrelevant. Some of the mountain roads, you'd have an incredible layer of pine duff and other debris uh, on the road. There would be a double track through it from where people had driven sometime in the last week. And then there would be a green stripe in the very middle of the road, which, again, was oftentimes only eight feet wide. And hmm. that was moss. So the, the descents were frequently pretty sketchy. And all the while, you know, you had to be prepared for somebody coming up the road toward you in a vehicle. And they would be driving in the middle of the road, leaving you very, very little room to work with. Uh, so, yeah, pretty, pretty strange circumstance. Did you run? Yeah. Did you run into other uh, other ride people riding out there? When we were in cities, we would see people on bikes commuting and that sort of thing. On the two weekends that we happened to be able to ride, we did see people out riding as well. But on a weekday, you didn't see anybody out, you know, training as a road rider. That mm-hmm. did not happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to describe it, what's the difference between the recreational riding here in the States and there in Japan, if there is any difference? Oh, I mean, well, the thing is, what I saw, I'm not going to be willing to take as representative representative of all of Japan. But I can tell you in the corner that I was in, which wasn't, you know, one of the weekend days was not too far from the city of Kobe, uh, also not too far from the city of Osaka. We are on this little bitty island that sits between Honshu and Shikoku, and it was kind of the weekend getaway spot. And the the first ride that I did was on Sunday of the first good weekend of the year. And so anybody with uh, a road bike or a Lamborghini or a Ferrari (laughs) or whatever they were out enjoying themselves uh people were you know walking down by the water and all that sort of thing and man you know when spring comes on in japan it's really something because the cherry blossoms were just in full riot it was a thing to behold wow so i imagine that uh you had an amazing adventure. I am looking forward to reading about it. Yeah. I'm, the one real downside to this is like, I feel like I've only scratched the surface of Shikoku. It's like, okay, now I've had my introduction. Now I want to mm-hmm. go back. You know, Now I want to get deeper into the interior of that island. And I also want to do it in May or June or something like that. We got rained on something like six out of 11 days. Which you expected, yeah. right? Spring. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it was but it sounds more. like that's sort of the sign of a good trip when you want to go back and experience it in, you know, in greater fullness, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, but the other, the one other thing I'll say is 
you know, a lot of people will like go to France and, you know, go with a guided tour. And then the next time they go by themselves, mm-hmm. I will not step foot into Japan without knowing that I've got a guide. Just that foreign to you, huh? Oh my gosh. Well, I planned an extra day at the very end of the trip so that I could spend some time wandering around either Kobe or Osaka and, you know, just do a little touristy stuff in an actual city, which I didn't do a lot of on this trip. And, you know, I thought that would be kind of interesting. And by the time I got dropped off at my hotel, all I wanted to do was go upstairs and watch movies on the TV. I was so intimidated. Now I did go out and then proceeded to have an absolute comedy of a purchase experience where one card wasn't working and they couldn't communicate that to me. They were just talking to me in Japanese, like you would expect an American to do with, with anyone else. And, Hmm. you know, we were using sign language and pointing at receipts and, Oh, uh, but the people were lovely. You know, it's just, the the hurdle of communication there and the hurdle of understanding how they do things. The Japanese, they love them some automation. If they can figure out some sort of vending machine to simplify the purchase experience, even if it ultimately makes it more complicated, they'll do that. Just so bizarre. Hmm. <laughs> and then after Japan, you went to Sea Otter. Yeah, which is I had, where I had like four nights at home and then took off for sea otter. And I went, uh, two days early so that I'd have a chance to join the folks at Marin for the mm-hmm. introduction of a new bike that they've just brought out called the Wolf Ridge. This is a long travel 29 er. So 160 millimeters of travel front and rear. And it's been five years in production. Daryl Voss, the head uh, engineer, dreamer, upper man at Nailed. He's been working on the basics of the suspension concept for more like 10 years. And we got a pretty fascinating education or lecture, depending on your, your viewpoint, uh, about how you know all current bicycle suspension systems are derived from motorcycles. I'm not an engineer geek enough to be able to say whether or not that's correct, but in broad strokes, it sort of makes sense. But so the, the, the details of the design behind the Wolf Ridge were pretty interesting, I'll say. And, you know, at least on paper, uh, my colleague, Matt Phillips at bicycling noted that they were some very, very bold claims and he wasn't entirely convinced. I don't think that, uh, it was going to hold up to all that. And I really haven't had a chance to talk to him since our ride. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he was right to note that, you know, they were they were making some, some pretty powerful claims about what this bike would do. So after having gone through all that, we got kitted up and went to the trail system over behind uh, UC Santa Cruz. And it's mostly just referred to as the UC. It's an incredible trail network back there. Loamy, in the forest, you know, like some, you know, Ewok land. It's it's just terrific riding. And at times, you know, super technical. There were a couple of descents where we got into some rock gardens that I just cho- <clears throat> chose to walk. But the thing that I was told to watch for was, of course, how well it pedaled. And, I mean, 160 millimeter bikes just on 
you know, traditionally don't pedal particularly well. And, you know, also that's, you know, it's, there aren't a lot of those 29 inch wheels, 160 millimeters of travel, give or take. You've got, uh, the specialized Enduro, you've got the Trek Slash, you've got the Evil Following, and there's a bike from Norco. And I think that's about it. You know, this is not really uh, a true category just yet, per se. But I think Marin is going to garner themselves a lot of attention. The, the experience of pedaling that bike through, you know, choppy terrain and whatnot was pretty impressive. And unlike so many bikes I've ridden, it actually rewards a higher cadence. So the more you downshifted and spun, the better the bike performed as you pedaled. It was a pretty eye-opening experience. I'm very, very keen to get to try this bike on my home trails of Anadel. You know, I, I kind of think that this bike might kill there because hmm. Anadel, with all its rock, is a place that, you know, likes longer travel, likes bigger wheels. And so to be able to float through that stuff a little more easily, hmm, that could be fun. So, Hadi, do you ride with uh, the longer travel mountain bikes just as in, in general? Do you own a longer travel mountain bike like that no, first this is this sounds interesting but all i have are hardtails i don't own a full suspension mountain bike at all yeah my full sus- i have a full suspension turner czar which mm-hmm. doubles as you know it's like an endurance cross-country slash trail bike it'll run a 124 con it if you want that that's about the max um the riding around here in the santa first of all i'm not brave enough to do a lot of that all mountain style riding downhill riding i just don't have the guts for it um and you know at heart i'm an endurance guy so that i'm going to lean yeah. towards most of that stuff um but it's interesting that marin had put so much effort patrick into the pedaling platform of a 150 or 160 mil travel bike because usually when i see guys on these all mountain bikes they're just doing whatever they can to get uphill they really don't care how fast they get uphill just as long as they just get up there eventually and then they can have their fun so why did marin feel like we got to put some effort into making this bike pedal well i guess my real question is how well did it go downhill because that's really the important thing is it not in this category i i didn't begin to tap what this bike can do i didn't get anywhere close to its ability you know i just you know part of it was you know, I'm on a trail system that I'm not 100% familiar with. I'm on a brand new bike to me. Both those are adequate reasons to just go 80%. Uh, other riders I saw, you know, get, shall we say, sufficiently more rad than I did. And it was very capable. The point for them with this bike was, you know, kind of why not just have one bike that does everything you need? That might be a, a little loftier idea or goal than is truly realistic but you know the like the question that eldon just put to you um you know you've got a cross-country bike that is maybe okay for some trail riding but you know it's really not going to be great for serious trail riding and you're not going to do anything approaching enduro or all mountain with that Mm -hmm. bike their argument with the Wolf Ridge is that you can go out and do a cross-country race on this bike. It pedals oh. that well. Oh. It's great for trail riding. You could easily do an enduro on it. It's badass enough that, you know, if you're an all-mountain rider, yeah, you could you could make it work for that. And mm. so it's got an incredibly broad appeal. And part of their argument 
is that mountain bikes had become have become so stratified, so niche that we're we're kind of pushing people out of the sport because they don't really know exactly which bike to get mm-hmm. or you know because the bikes aren't versatile enough. Mm-hmm. They just kind of give up on the sport. And so mm-hmm. this is a, a bike that's meant to give a rider you know a much broader range of experiences. And for me, you know, yeah, I don't I don't I'm not a versatile enough rider to really need three bikes. I can see kind of some use for a cross country bike from time to time, but that's really not the riding I do for the most part. I am very firmly a trail rider. I am borderline rad adjacent. You know, my huck time can be measured in milliseconds rather than full seconds. But (laughs) I, you know, I like, you know, zooming through stuff. I love descending. Uh, I just might not take the line that results in the most air. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I prefer my wheels on the ground for the most part. I'd like to be more comfortable with, with catching air. And certainly, you know, this is a bike that will allow me to grow my abilities, you know, and so... uh, I think ultimately any manufacturer, when they sell a bike, I think ultimately their goal is to know that they've delivered a bike to the rider that doesn't hold them back. You know, there's so much of cycling that's aspirational that we all want to think that now I've got a bike that will allow me to unlock the full range of my ability. And so to have one mountain bike that will allow you to embrace the full range of the kind of riding that you want to do is really pretty attractive. It's a it's an easy sales pitch to me. Okay. Excellent. Well, hats off to Marin. I mean, it's they are you know they are getting a buzz out there too. That's for sure. More people are talking about Marin. They're going, yeah, Marin's back. They're doing interesting things. Um, they're doing interesting things in other categories too with bikes with seven hundred C bikes. So, uh, yeah. cool company. And Yuri Hanswald rides them. We love you know we love to see Yuri doing well. On- Actually, Yuri just moved over to Scott. Oh, he, did he? he had a real yeah. yeah he had a he had a really nice Facebook post uh, it, it, where it wasn't it wasn't at all quiet. It was just truly gracious to Marin, mm. and that you know their their needs recently sort of parted ways. Where they're going and where he's going were just a little bit different, but he had a lot of love for them, and that you know and that remains true. Cool. So, yeah, that yeah that post was pure class. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, any other great, uh, any other things during Sea Otter itself that you oh my think gosh, we, yeah. we I mean, got in? I know. Did anything <laughs> happen at Sea Otter? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, well, I mean, let's remember first and foremost, this is a race event. Yes, it's become the spring interbike. Um, but, you know, while I'm busy visiting all these companies in their 10 by 10 and 10 by 20 tents, you know, there are road races going on, mountain bike races going on, dual slalom races going on. There are two different road grand fondos. There's a dirt fondo for people with mountain bikes, and there was even a gravel grinder event this year. So I literally have never found another event on the planet with more different types of riding on tap. They had a couple of different pump tracks at least two different dirt jump tracks, you know, there inside Laguna Seca. So, you know, they've done an outstanding job of creating an atmosphere where riding is is welcome um, and promoted and is promoted off uh, across the broadest range of riders that I've ever seen because they're doing a lot to, you know, encourage families to come, bring your kids, you know, 
there's one of the pump tracks is really for little people. Uh, so, uh, you know, a tremendous event from that standpoint, but my gosh, I, I was there for four days doing almost nothing but visiting manufacturers. I went for three rides, uh, two of them, you know, early in the morning before, you know, it was, you know, really time to be visiting people, but I never saw everything I wanted to. And I, like I said, I was there four days. It's an incredible collection of manufacturers, everything from bike companies like Specialized and Scott and Marin to, you know, smaller outfits, you know, uh, Commotion is usually there. You know, Ibis was there. Let's see, you know, you've got uh, Fat nutrition Chance. companies. Yeah, you yep. did some smaller Fat companies. Fat Chance was there. Yep, showing off a new cross bike. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got nutrition uh, companies there. You know, Noon was there with Stacy Sims. Osmo, of course, is back. They had product there. Um, let's see. Scratch Labs was not there this year. And normally they have a little trailer, yeah. a little yeah. mobile kitchen. And Scratch Labs is how I feed myself at Otter. <laughs> you know, they their food is high quality, great ingredients. They're, you know, a simple um, you know, kind of simple meals, but they're, they're filling. Um, and they're also very reasonably priced. So mm -hmm. I was incredibly bummed. Uh, somebody needs to have a talk with Bijou and Alan about that. That was, right. that was a, a, a miss. So you have um, some, you have some posts up already that we've seen. Uh, I think there's yeah. three up as of this episode of the, of the pace line. And I've been perusing those. First of all, um, Lightspeed was also there, another bike company. We've reviewed their T5G not long ago, but now they've introduced a new gravel rig and a, a new road bike as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. The world's first one kilogram titanium road frame. And they say it's a, a lot stiffer than their previous, you know, ultra lightweight efforts. Um, you know, I can't judge that just yet, but seeing the work they did uh, to try to eliminate weight and do it intelligently so that you don't end up with a whippy frame, it was very impressive. You know, I, I like that bike a lot. And then, yes, they have a new gravel bike called just the Gravel. And it makes uh, some notable changes from the T5G. So it's a smaller top tube to kind of ease the ride some. Smaller dropouts in the rear, sculpted a little more to help, I think, soften the rear triangle some. Uh, flat mount disc mounts. As a matter of fact, the, there's a lot of relieving that was done on the inside of that mount at the chainstay. It was some really incredible, incredible machining, you know, looks like a gorgeous bike. Mm -hmm. So very similar to what you rode, but I'm told a, you know, a more forgiving ride. So just a, yeah. you know, a little friendlier over the rough stuff. Yeah. And, and Brad Devaney, the head of product development for that company hinted to me that this bike was coming out when I interviewed him and said, you know, weight would be another thing he would be after that bike because the T5G is on the, was on the heavier side. I noted that in my review that it was, you know, a burly strong bike and Brad knew that knew that too. And I think he, he was aiming to draw the weight down a little bit on his, on his gravel entry. Now you also got to look at something that I've been whining about earlier because we haven't seen it yet. And that is SRAM ETAP's Hydro system so you actually saw this did you get the did you get to touch it i actually got to ride it oh and yeah so, so it exists it's out there somewhere oh oh it's a real thing yeah, okay. really and for true yes we got together i believe it was saturday morning and went out for a gravel ride on some of the dirt roads there around laguna seca and through fort ord 
and I had no idea how many dirt roads there were. And, you know, the, the way that network works is you can pick up little sections of single track here and there. So you can pick and choose just how gnarly you want to get single track wise, you know, with your gravel bike. And so we went out for about three hours. <laughs> I was expecting to. Boy, it was, it was just fantastic stuff. I've noticed that with electronic shifting, I shift more often. I mm. absolutely do. Yep. You know, when, when it's not an effort to make a, a shift in the chain rings or to downshift in the rear, uh, just tap that lever. I will definitely do it more often. And with the hydro brakes, you know, stopping, controlling the bike was just so much easier. Something I noted, and I talked with Brad Mena, who is the road product manager for, uh, for SRAM's road groups. Uh, he, uh, he was there for, you know, the, the complete redesign of the hydro system. And one of the things I, I was curious about was that early on, most of the disc brake systems for road were kind of grabby. When you yeah. touch the brakes, you know, they made, you know, a noticeable change in your velocity instantly. And, you know, that was, that was kind of problematic for me because, and plenty of other roadies as well, because a lot of times we'll just tap the brakes to scrub a little bit of speed. You're just you're not really trying to control your speed as much as your position relative to other riders. And so that's a very minute level of control uh, over your speed. And I've noticed that uh, both Shimano and SRAM have really improved in, the, in their ability to do that. Uh, you know, they're not so grabby as they were. And it's funny because Brad couldn't point to any one thing, like a change in pad compound, you know, even though the, the, the master cylinder and the entire system was completely redesigned on that brake system, they didn't do anything deliberately to make those brakes uh, more roadworthy. And yet, you know, yes, they're, they're much easier to work with in a group. You know, I'm not hearing people behind me go, oh, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to sound like a cynic with SRAM, but because uh, I do love their product. I, I ride their product. I think it's fantastic stuff for the most part. There just has been some impatient with the impatience, that is, with uh, SRAM's ETAP Hydro. It's good to see that it is, it is making its debut. We should, I think we should see it in the summer sometime on, on bikes out there in the riding public. Now, one of my favorite inventions of all time of anywhere is the zip tie. I think it's a fantastic little thing. I carry them when I ride. And you came across at Sea Otter <laughs> a reusable zip tie. Is that true? What? Yeah, this company That's called heresy. Ziploc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, these people are going to be drummed out of some club for that. You know, Home yeah. Depot will never <laughs> right. carry them. But yeah, so this uh, little outfit called Hip Lock um, has a reusable zip tie. Now, it's considered primarily like a security device. If you want to just... Uh, attach your bike to a parking meter or a, you know a stair stairway uh, rail something like that um, you just wrap this thing around it and there's a little uh, sort of key that you shove in the side that causes it to release so you pull that out and boom it's uh, it's you know really very simple to use you just pop that in your pocket and it uh, uh, you get two in a pack and it's, yeah, just kind of genius for that. I'm sort of excited about it from the standpoint of, uh, packing bikes for travel. Yeah. So lashing stuff together and keeping it stable inside the case. 
But yeah, I can see loads of use for this thing. So I, I didn't find out exactly how much they go for it yet, but it's two in, two in a pack. Hmm, cool. Two in a pack? There should be like 500. That's how I'm used to buying my zip ties. <laughs> oh, well. So there's definitely a lot to see at Sea Otter, right? And there's no way to see it all. So there was another bike on display at Laguna Seca with a special paint job honoring a special event. And the bike was a Sage Barlow painted with the color schemes used for the Belgian waffle ride. Hottie's got the interview with the maker. Next on the Paceline. You can have a bike now where travel does not define category, where you can go experience everything that the joy of mountain biking has to offer in one package. It is literally one bike to rule them all. talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist to hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL to HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for people on low carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com slash paceline. But Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, Michael Houghton here, a.k.a. Hottie, along with uh, Fatty and Patrick Brady back from Japan and Sea Otter. And uh, prior to the break there, we were talking, of course, about Sea Otter and all the stuff we saw. And Fatty, you mentioned uh, a bike on display there, the Sage Barlow, mm -hmm. painted in the color scheme used by the famous, now famous, Belgian Waffle Ride. Have you ever done this ride? While I love a good Belgian waffle, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I love any kind of waffle, I don't even know what the Belgian waffle ride is, much less have ever done it. Well, the, Bel the Belgian waffle ride has become an annual spring event. I think they're in their um, sixth running of it my, right now. It was uh, initially started by an optics company, Spy Optics. Michael Marks, who was running the company, decided he wanted to put on um, an, an epic, right? sometimes I hate that word, but epic bike ride that was uh, in North San Diego County and still is in North San Diego County, covering mostly road, but some dirt roads as well. Um, it is 130-ish miles. It's varied over times. Um, I think the first few they did was just one big loop. And now what they do is they double loop the course. Or they, they yeah, they, they double loop the course is what they do. Um, you can do a shorter ride called the Wafer. So it's half the distance. 
Um, it is a tough event. It requires people who have taken their training seriously, who have thought about the bike they're going to ride, their setup, their nutrition, the whole thing. It's right there with, you know, Leadville on the dirt um, and some <laughs> of the, you know, some of the other large events that we all become well aware of. The ones that we get obsessed by. Right. And it's become one of those events that people are, you know, get their bikes ready for and manufacturers are starting mm -hmm. to look at the event and go, maybe we can do something special uh, for the Belgian Waffle Ride. And uh, like we said, at Sea Otter, there was a bike, the Sage Barlow, painted in the color scheme of the Belgian Waffle Ride. Now, I, I bring up this bike and this ride uh, for three reasons. I have ridden the bike, actually, the Sage Barlow, not the one painted like we saw at Sea Otter. I've also ridden the Belgian Waffle Ride, although I'm not going to do it uh, this year. And I've uh, met and spoken with the owner and the founder of Sage Titanium Bikes. He is David Rosen. And he will be doing the Belgian Waffle Ride this year, in fact. David and I got together actually a few months ago. Uh, we rode bikes. We rode the Sage Barlow, in fact, in the Santa Monica Mountains. And then we sat down at a picnic table up there for a conversation about his life in bikes and how he got there. Here's David Rosen of Sage titanium bikes on chasing his dream learning from mistakes and keeping it simple david rosen came from the east coast originally um born and raised in in new york and uh been riding bikes all my life started racing in uh mountain bikes in high school um and just was always in love with the sport um and just took it to the next level of eventually getting into road and continuing on with mountain cross country was big back in the uh, the 90s and so i was very focused on that and in um in 2002 i moved out to portland oregon and when i moved out there that's when i really got into road and then uh cyclocross and that just became the end all be all for me was cyclocross. And so it just, it opened up my world as far as different types of riding, different terrain to ride on, different conditions, and just a great community of people to ride with because the Portland community is just really supportive and very, you know, welcoming of, of people to come in and join and ride. And, and it was just, it's been a great experience. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I've uh, been. Yeah, but at the time you were not in the bike business, though, right? When you went no. to Portland? No, I was not. Uh, when I was uh, when I moved out to Portland, I was actually doing retail. Uh, so it was uh, retail sales and management of uh, retail stores and that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, my my dream at the time was to work for Nike. And so I eventually got into working at Nike, and I got into Nike Corporate, where I was a uh, demand planner uh, in their uh, logistics supply chain group. Um, and so all I did was number crunching. And uh, with that, there was always the dream in the back of my mind to do the, the bike industry. And so uh, eventually I was able to kind of make my way into the industry. And I've been here since uh, 2010 yeah. in the industry. How did you make the leap from that, from retail, um, to building bikes? Well, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a lifelong bike fan, um, I've always been one to, and this is before the internet, mind you, so my only sources of information were all the magazines I could read. So if it was various newspapers or, um, you know, uh, European magazines or U.S.-based magazines, I was studying all of the, um, the geometries and the designs and just I would pick apart all the bikes and, and those sorts of things. And when I was in Nike, my focus and my job was mainly based around analytics and, you know, number crunching and that sort of thing. And so when I made the, the leap, um, 
I have to say it was actually during the recession, Nike laid off part of their workforce. And so I was part of the layoffs and which was honestly the best thing that ever happened to me uh, because it, it really forced me to step back and go, what do I want to do for myself? What do I want to be 10 years down the road? I want to be happy. And it, what makes me happy? Cycling makes me happy. So why not do something in the bike industry? Let's, life is too short. And, you know, there are so many companies that you can get into that are wonderful places to work and that sort of thing. But in the grand scheme of things, you sometimes still have to look out for yourself. And this was me being able to go, what do I want to do? And so, I love bikes, and so that that forced me to make the jump, but I was able to use my background of analytics and apply that to what I'm doing now. So it's it's translated over nicely, but it was that was the jump. So it's great you had a dream, you wanted to build bikes or at least get in the bike industry, but what did you see in the industry itself that what hole needed to be filled and, and how did you figure out how to fill it? The, the hole I saw was really around the constant turnover of particularly carbon bikes. And the fact that myself included, um, as a consumer, I was getting into a, a vicious cycle of uh, every three years, two to three years, every, every two years, I was already starting to look for my next carbon bike. Every three years, if I didn't sell that bike within that three-year time period, the, the return that I could get on swapping it over for the next latest and greatest was diminishing quickly. And I had always loved titanium uh, bikes back in the 90s and metal jet steel bikes and, and titanium in general and always was a fan of them. Just the ride is just is supple. It's, you know, it's great. And it's classic. It's vintage. I think of Le Monde. I think of Fignon. I think of Eddie Merckx, you know, going all the way back then. I mean, it's just that's it was that was the thing. And so with titanium, I saw a, the possibility of a bike that was the, the manufacturing techniques had been improved enough that performance was not an issue like it was in the 90s. In the 90s, titanium bikes were known for being a little on the flimsier side of things because they were trying to be as light as possible. And I came to the conclusion that you can make a bike that was a little bit heavier but the ride quality would be superior to what it was and as good as a carbon bike. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily need to sell it in three years. You'd keep it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I will see Sage customers on the road with these bikes because the bike is just going to last. It's not going to fail. It's titanium, the high strength to weight ratio, the ride quality, and it's a classic look. And so I saw this as a, a hole in the industry where the industry was moving in my view, towards disposable bikes, I wanted something that a customer um, a, is going to have for a very long time. Now, like a lot of the carbon makers these days, you started off making your bikes in Asia. Correct. Tell us why and why that didn't work out. So the original intent was um, to offer, again, going back to titanium, to offer a price point where I was separating myself from the competition in the market. So Moots has always been a uh, Halo brand that I see. I, I have a great amount of respect for them and what they do. And so I saw myself as being able to come in below them in price and so offering an alternative. And uh, the way to do that was going through Asia and an Asian sourced uh, frame. 
And so uh, I built up bikes and, and had the, the logos done and, and the price points, and we, we started offering them to shops. And the feedback we got from customers was they liked the look of the bikes, they loved the titanium, they loved the price, but they didn't like that they were made in Asia. And it was just a general feedback from customers. The other uh, issue that I was experiencing on the inside was that I was seeing QC issues. And it was I was having to send back frames back to the factory to either have them repaired or just scrapped and replaced. And it was the failure rate of stuff coming back was, to me, was just too high. And so I made the decision that based on all of those, all those that information that I had, in 2014, I stopped uh, Asian production and I switched to uh, Made in USA uh, with the focus of actually then going for, rather than trying to be at a lower price point, Let's just make a premium bike. Let's just go for it and just make a great performing bike with high quality parts, a high quality build construction on the frame, great warranty, great customer service, and just provide a premium experience for the consumer. And that's where uh, it's all been about. And now the focus is totally on USA. Did that, did that hurt your ability to challenge on the price level? One of your original goals is to challenge a Moots or a Seven on price level. How did that change things for you? coming to America. Yeah, um, on you know it it hurt a little bit um in the beginning, but I think um as people have grown as the brand has grown and people have start to see the brand as more of a premium brand, they are accepting of the the time and effort and the the engineering and the knowledge that's going into the bikes and they understand that they're getting a premium product so it's kind of offset itself so in the beginning it was a little bit of a shock to the system but it's it's picked up like oh yeah i mean you're never going to see a sage on sale they just i just they won't go on sale because it's just there there is no reason to it's a quality bike it's going to be the same in 20 years mm -hmm. so. so the frames come out of tennessee mm -hmm. out of linsky they actually handle the what where does your relationship, where does, where's your fingerprint on that bike and where is theirs? So my fingerprint is the, um, the, the overall design of the bike, the design itself. So I actually input the actual numbers. Um, I'm the one that's actually figuring out the angles, the lengths of the tubes, the, the rakes, etc. you know, the, the trail of the fork, et cetera. Um, th that's all me. Um, the individual components, you know, for the, whether it's, on the Barlow, it's the chainstay, uh, the yokes on the, the chainstays, or the our, our patented cable clip system that allows you to convert from DI2 to mechanical. Those are all me. That is that is me. That is not um, Linsky. All Linsky is doing for me is supplying their 30 years plus of welding and manufacturing capabilities to build a top quality frame. So they allow me to do all the design work and they build it to my spec. So this is entirely a Sage. It is just built at a factory that is happens to build other brands as well. Were there, so price was the, the main motivator for starting in Asia. Were yeah. there any other impediments about maybe starting in America first and trying it there? Or was it just that the price, you, the price could not be matched? It was really a price thing. It really was. Um, you know, I hate to say it, it it's just, you get what you pay for. And it was, yeah, the price was significantly lower, but then so was the quality. And it's the, the bikes that we did sell all passed QC inspection and they have full warranties behind them. So if a customer were to have an issue with one of those, I would take it back and you know, we would, we would take care of the customer as they, we would normally. 
Um, but it really was a it was a price consideration, and it was it was the the business we were trying to go after in the beginning um, of trying to. Uh, open up more doors and trying to, oh, well, this is a great price alternative. And it was, I didn't, I, it was a race to the bottom of the barrel. And that's where it, it kind of spiraled into. And I just, I didn't want to be in that anymore. And with the quality that we were getting, it was just, it just made sense to just get out of that and just let's, before the brand gets devalued, let's just stop it, start it over and go from, go forward. You have three bikes in your line now, right? The Skyline, is that, Skyline's the road bike. We right. rode the Barlow today, which is an adventure bike. And the, right. what do you call the cross bike? The PDX CX, so Portland Cyclocross. Okay, so, so. you're using the airport code. Uh, exactly. I got it. Yeah. And do you all, and anything on the horizon? Are you satisfied with three right now? Is that enough work for you? Or do you see yourself growing sooner rather than later um the next bike as far as a new model is actually going to be a uh, skyline disc so there will be a disc specific road bike um you know i one of the things that's important for me is that the bikes do not cross over as far as their intended use the cross bike is a cross bike yes you can use it on the road yes you could use it on the gravel but it's a cross bike and that's what it's designed for the road bike is a road bike Yes, you could take it on the trails. You won't race cross on it, but it's a road bike. Yeah. And the gravel bike kind of crosses over between both, but it's really at home on, well, gravel. Yeah. You know, or mixed surface. Or mixed surface kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so the Skyline disc is gonna is gonna kind of blend a little between the Skyline and the Barlow in terms of bigger tire clearance and disc brakes, because there are some people that maybe don't want a true gravel bike, but they want disc brakes and they want, mm -hmm. if they did happen to go off-road, a, a larger tire would be nice. Um, but for me, I think with those models, that'll be the the main, the main focus for right now. Um, it's tough for me to offer one production mountain bike because there's so many niches in there. Is it a 29er? Is it a 27.5? Is it plus? Is it not plus? And it depends on who you ask in what territory. SoCal is different than Pacific Northwest, is different than the East Coast, is different than the Southeast. And everybody rides something different. And so from a production standpoint, you you can't, as a small brand, I can't offer uh, five bikes. Moots can do that because they're a, they're a big company, mm -hmm. for example. But I have to be very targeted about what I do. And so I'm trying to make whatever bike I put out as a production bike has to be the best that it can be you know, for covering a, a wide enough audience that it, it appeals to people in different parts of the country kind of thing. Um, so if somebody wants a mountain bike, for example, I'm happy to do a custom. Absolutely can do full custom bikes, whether you want travel bike, whether you want it painted, whether you want a mountain bike, a track bike, you know, a tandem, I, you know, let's go for it. We can do it all. That's not a problem, but it's just, they're going to be one-offs kind of thing. And, um, and when you say custom, you mean custom geometry or personalization of the bike? Uh, both. So okay. full custom geometry. So we offer everything under the sun. So, you know, uh, disc brakes, pump pegs, water bottle bosses, uh, internal routing if you really wanted it. Um, you know, there, there's anything you want to do, custom paint. It, it's all on. It's all. Everything's on the table. Do you always see tie in your Is tie the, the material you're sticking with or do you see yourself branching out at all? Um, that's a good question. Uh, Ty is always going to be the, the mainstay. And for as much as I have entertained the thought of, you know, maybe it's a steel, like a lower grade steel version down the road, or maybe it's a carbon version or, or something like that. And I, and I, 
readily admit I've entertained the thought. I keep coming back to when I've seen companies do it and they get off their main um, what's been successful for them, I, I feel like they lose focus. And so I would probably, it's it's probably just going to be sticking with titanium. It's just, I love the material. And, and yeah. probably, probably the question I should have asked first, that is Sage. Where'd the name come from? Um, well, Sage, the, the word, I've, I've had a couple people come up to me and go, um, are you talking about the herb? You know, they, no, it's not the herb. Um, and then other people have, well, that, you know, and they look at the decals and, you know, the, the bike I'm riding today has red decals and they go, oh, that sage is more of a kind of an earthy tone, right? No, that's, that's not. Sage is, is wisdom. It's if a sage person, and that's what, um, you are a sage when this bike is a sage, you are a sage and it is the wise choice, if you will. Um, so, you know, the, the words have, and the, the iconography that I use for the bike with the owl, for example, all of that has meaning to me. Um, so the, the word sage, what I'm saying is you are a person who has actually thought about this from the perspective of this is a long-term investment. This is something that you're going to have for many years, um, down the road. And it's a, it's a smart decision, um, you know, and not knocking other, bikes or materials or anything like that, but titanium tends to last. And so I, I feel like those who are, um, you know, buying sages have made that decision. Like I'm, I'm, they've put some thought into this kind of thing. Like this is, there's a reason for this. Um, the owl that I use as my logo, you know, you look at, um, uh, Western culture, um, you know, you watch movies or, or even Greek mythology, uh, where you see the owl is always representative of wisdom, right? It's, yeah. it's a wise, representation. But the funny thing is, if you do a little research um, in uh, African and Asian cultures, uh, the owl means death from above. Oh, no. So, um, but so that's why the owl has kind of a, you know, if you look at him, uh, he has kind of a mean look to him. And so the idea is, um, you know, and this owl that we actually use for the logo is the great horned owl. So it's, it's actually got a six foot wingspan. It's actually in the forests of North America. It's the top, uh, flight predator kind of thing. Okay. Um, just, it's a killer. It's a, it's an absolute killing machine. So what I'm now saying is you're a wise person who's going to go out. And if you're competing on the bike, you're going to kill your competition. You're going to kill the trails. You're, you're a slayer. You're aggressive. I mean, it's just... It, it all kind of blends together and it's all about that, you know, trying to make that meaning. And, and just like the names of the bikes themselves, you know, Barlow is, there's a, the Barlow trail in Oregon. It's a 170, 170 mile old pioneering trail. That's this giant gravel road. And so the bike's named after that skyline is named after there's a famous road that goes just above Portland. That's called skyline road. And it's a fantastic road bike and PDX CX. Well, that's kind of obvious. Yeah, so obvious cool. Well, you're still an analytical guy, but, You've got some wisdom too. So well, thank you. that's uh, good to see. Great, great bike. I really enjoyed riding it today. And we were on the game. We were on the Barlow, the Sage Barlow. I think mm -hmm. folks should check it out. Great titanium bike. Dave, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Again, that was David Rosen of Sage Titanium Bicycles. The Barlow, his gravel bike, has an interesting chain stay, a bottom bracket junction, actually. He has a special yoke that allows for a 5339 chain set. But it's still able to run 40s, which is, if you know anything about bike geometry and setup, but that's a little difficult to do to have a big chain set like that and big tires as well. And that yoke was the reason he and I met, kind of a weird reason to meet, but we met because of a yoke. <laughs> I was checking out the bike online. I asked about the need for that 
special unit down there if uh, if I would ever really need it at all if I if I tend to run smaller chain sets he was good enough to answer my questions and we decided to make a, a bike date and go for a ride he's a good guy uh, you know just generous with his time he's getting high marks from the press uh, for his bikes he has three bikes as he mentioned in the interview but outside of Portland not a well-known brand so he needs a break to keep things going I think uh, we'll have a link to Sage Titanium Bikes on the RKP page for this podcast, so please check that out. By all means, do check it out. Thanks, Hottie. Great interview. And I believe that takes us to, and here's where you insert the musical cue. Just kidding. Pace line picks. We need to have a sound effect okay. for pace line picks. There, we That's just it. made two. I like it. <laughs> that was so easy. We are a super professional setup here. I'm going to go first with the pace line pick this time. And mine is not a product. It's not a book. It's not uh, even a TV show. It is something that I am experiencing, and that is rest week guilt. Mm. I... Uh, so as as I've talked about in many episodes of the Paceline recently, Jonathan Vodders is guiding me through my training this year, and I feel like I am doing pretty well, and I feel like I am working hard, and I am making progress, and this week he has me taking a lot of rest days. He says, it's time. You need a chance to rebuild, and so I have had two rest days in a row and I am freaking out. I am, you know, I, I, there's, I think there is sort of a, a monkish almost uh, ethic that as cyclists, we think if we are not training every single day, if we are not working, if we are not doing something, that we are falling apart. And that's kind of what I'm experiencing for, you know, on day two, one rest day and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. The second rest day and I'm like, oh, this is it. I am falling. This is, I, I, I have lost all my fitness. I'm going to get back on the bike tomorrow and I'm going to be back to zero. Um, I don't know. Have you guys experienced well, First that? of all, it you, seems... you realize the opposite is true here. The opposite I know. happens. It's when you rest. In my head, I know when that. Your body, that's when your body <laughs> compensates or hopefully overcompensates for the stress you put on it. So you have to rest or you'll never get better. You will stick where you are or get worse because you'll be overtrained. So you have to trust <sighs> the Vada. You have to trust the vision. Trust your yoga. And I trust, there. yeah, I, I trust Vodders. I just, I mean, that's my head, right? My In my head, I trust him. I'm just saying, you know, my gut is like, fatty. <laughs> Take a pal. <laughs> it's, Xanax and Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh. <laughs> so I need to medicate for my <laughs> mind is what I... Is what I... <laughs> oh, All right, Patrick, guys... look, in your racing days, I mean, I know I've come across them. They're... Yeah, come on. And you know hundreds of guys who did it too, and, and ladies too, who do this. They can't sit oh, yeah. still. Well, you know, the, the hammer is following along the same program. Uh, that Vodders is doing for me. And she she's worse because she is a runner as well as a cyclist. And so she's cheating a little bit. She's like, okay, I'm going out for a run. I'll be back soon. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, stress. <okay>. Yep. <laughs> it's who we are, man. Mm-hmm. It is who we are. It is what we do. So anyway, that is my pace line pick. Ra- rest, weak, guilt. Okay. Patrick, what's your pick? 
So my pick this week is one of the manufacturers of kids' bikes that I saw at Sea Otter. There were a number of them there. Um, a new company called Prevelo. Uh, GT was introducing some new bikes, so some stuff for the brick and mortars. Uh, also uh, a small outfit from here in California called Cleary. But Isla Bikes, which is a British ba- uh, brand, and their, their U.S. headquarters is in Portland. Um, they, they amazed me. I knew that they had a number of different bikes that they offered, but I'd never seen them all presented together, and it was more than a dozen different bikes. They've thought through you know, bringing someone into cycling and then graduating them up through the sizes so that they remain you know, on bikes that fit them, you know, that are comfortable, that handle well, and, you know, allow them to transition into cycling as an adult. I, I swear to you, nobody is thinking through kids' bikes to the degree that Isla Bikes is. They're absolutely phenomenal. They're easy to find online. It's just islabikes.com. We'll have a link. But I had so much fun just looking at all the different things they offer. And it's not just that they do bikes. They also do, you know, racks and fenders, and they offer tires. They've really thought through the kids' experience as cyclists uh, in a very thorough form. And so it's just fantastic stuff. That's my pick. Start him young. It's not a bad idea. Get him hooked early. Hottie, how about you? All right, my baseline pick is a person, Jacob Zurl. Zurl completed the Cuba Challenge. He rode across the island 900 miles in heat, humidity, rain, in 58 hours, 48 minutes. Yeah, wow. he didn't. Yeah, he didn't stop much. He was hoping to go actually about two hours faster. Oh, well. Uh, he is the <laughs> first to traverse Cuba on bike nonstop. Zerl is Austrian, and he's into this kind of thing, extreme cycling. He rode across the Himalayas in a record 39 hours. Zerl was going to attempt the Cuba Challenge in 2015, but while on the island, he came down with dengue fever. Damn, those third world countries. He scrapped the ride, went back to Austria, and went into quarantine. But 2017, spring of 2017, was a success for Zurl. He rode a bike with disc brakes, drop bars, and aero clip-ons. He wore the Cuban national colors and ingested 500 calories an hour. But the most amazing thing about Zurl's Cuba challenge was not the length or the lack of sleep or the schwitz. It was this. That is Natalia Kills and her song, Free. And it was likely the song Zurl listened to for the entire ride. Yes, one song over and over and over. The version I found is about five minutes long. So based on the time it took Zurl, to cross Cuba, he listened to this track more than 700 times. That truly is suffering on the bike. That's all. Now, Chapeau. I don't, I don't know. I've gone from impressed to horrified. <laughs> this is, I just can't. I mean... Well, it's awesome that he did the ride, but why? Well, it's why, almost hypnotic. Why subject yourself yeah, it, to something it, like that? There's no song in the world. It's it's all about like pain diversion, and he said the song, the repetitive nature of the song, 
uh, helps just keep his mind off of what his body's going through. The pain, the weather, the hunger, all of it. And he uses a single song to achieve that. Do either of you watch The Walking Dead? <laughs> so in the in the most recent season, one of the one of the main characters in the show is locked up in a in a dark room and is forced to listen to a song over and over as by way of torture. Um <laughs> He didn't choose that, but it worked. I mean, it sounds to me like this guy did it to himself. I, well, you know, he was I, I, he was so geez. committed to this fatty. He brought three <laughs> iPods with him to Cuba to make sure that if one iPod failed or he lost one, he'd have a backup one and a, and yet another backup one. He said one year he was doing one of these crazy rides, and his team car, support car, ran over his iPod, and he was without his music, his single song, and he was devastated. So he brought three iPods to Cuba this time. I uh, there are not enough iPods in the world that I could do that I would keep all of them. I guarantee they would all break. By yeah, okay. So and I'm not saying anything against that song. I'm just saying that listening to a single song over and over, I have a problem with when I'm writing that a song will get stuck in my head <laughs> and it's infuriating and I'd hate it. That he would willingly do that to himself. It, wow. You can tell that the, this one's kind of freaking me out a little mm-hmm. bit. So, oh, well. <laughs> well, with that, and we're, we'll have to have that play out for the, for the end of the Talk episode. Get up, it's everyone still going. Here's your number. Oh, it's, of course it's still going. Go ahead. All Close right. <laughs> so... The, that is it for this episode for crying out loud thanks everyone for listening and apologies if we've got this stuck in your head once again subscribe rate us review us all the places that you normally would leave us a rating in itunes especially if we love it or learn from it we'll read it for potty for patrick i'm fatty and you've been listening to the baseline i love to rock them things i like